Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, it's been a while since I last did a news segment, so I thought it was time to circle around and do a little Disney news and give you the latest goings-on from around the Walt Disney World and beyond, too. So we'll start off with the Fantasyland expansion. Fantasyland is nearing completion as far as uh, the first phase of all of the expansion and everything that's happening there. Most of the Attractions, shows, and rides are open at this point. There are still a few things that are pending, a couple of things that are uh, still being worked out, and of course the Dwarf's Mine Train won't open until sometime probably end of next year. But otherwise, most things are open. They've been playtesting the, uh, the restaurants and uh, doing some different things, so I think they're uh, pretty well on their way to completion. So you definitely need to go and check that out. I do too, and I'd like to do a podcast about some of the enhancements that have been specifically made there. So stay tuned for another podcast about that in the near future. Well, one of the interesting things I heard about the Fantasyland expansion was that they were going to be serving beer in the Magic Kingdom. And this would be the first time that they're serving beer. Now, when I first heard it, I was a little skeptical and did a little research and tried to figure out what in the world was going on. Because, as you may know, Disney World, the Magic Kingdom in particular, has been very big about not serving alcohol. In Disneyland, the only place you can get it is in the, uh, in the Club 33. That's the only place you can get uh, alcohol. In the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World, there was no place to get alcohol. And uh, that was kind of a big thing that Walt had planned. It was, it's a family-oriented park, and he didn't want to have alcohol served there. So even when they had the mile-long bar over in uh, Frontierland, right next to the uh, Country Bears, that bar itself was actually just a snack bar. They would serve sodas and soft drinks and things like that, but they didn't serve alcohol. Now comes word that they're actually going to be serving alcohol over at uh, the New Fantasyland. Now, it went back and forth a little bit. As I was doing my research, I found that they had this uh, drink called Le Fuse Brew, and it's like a frozen apple juice drink that's, a, that's made to look like a, like a daiquiri kind of a thing. But that was the only thing I could find out. And then I came to find out that it's not actually at the Gaston's Tavern that they're serving it. It's actually in the Be Our Guest restaurant and only for the dining service in the evenings. So you can order a beer. There's a couple of selections of beer that they'll have available and only in the sit-down version of the restaurant. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little twist that I hadn't counted on. So it turns out that there will be alcohol served in the Magic Kingdom for the first time ever. Now, I'm a little confused about this one. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I suppose society has changed and our, our own moral compass has changed to some degree. But still, having alcohol at the Magic Kingdom seems wrong to me. It's been that way for 40 years with no alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. Now it feels like uh, they're actually making a change. Now, I'm not, I'm, like I said, I'm not sure it's a good thing, but I don't suppose it's necessarily a bad thing if it's only at the sit-down restaurant. Now, I was talking with a lady the other day who's not much of a Disney fan, and she said, well, alcohol served at the Magic Kingdom. It's the only way I could get through the park, which made me laugh pretty hard. Now, there is one other thing that hasn't opened yet over at the Fantasyland, and that's Bell's Magic Mirror. Now, I saw a video for Bell's Magic Mirror, and I was absolutely astounded at the technology that's gone into that. It's this uh, wall hanging or covering that suddenly changes and becomes an entryway. And it's the most fascinating thing I've seen. From a technological standpoint, it's really cool the way they kind of open it up and you can walk through a wall. 
Now, of course, it's all done with projections and moving parts and things like that, but it's really, really clever and it looks really cool and the effect is absolutely compelling. I'll put a link to the video on my show notes page over at uh, DisneyWorldPodcast.net if you want to see it, but it is really, really something. And I'm just absolutely amazed at the fact that they can put all this technology together and make something work like that. And that's something I am really, absolutely looking forward to seeing when we go up there. Well, the big news from a couple of weeks ago was that Lucasfilm was purchased by Disney. And I think that is an amazing thing. So the Star Wars saga, Indiana Jones, all of the other things that Lucasfilm has put together, and I think that's absolutely amazing. So Disney has already announced plans to create three more Star Wars films. As I understand it, it was the original plan of George Lucas to produce a total of nine films in the Star Wars saga, the original three that were the middle three films. Then there was the prequel, which would be the early three films that you saw come out between about 99 and 2006. And now uh, Disney is looking at producing the sequel films that would come after the original trilogy. So I think this is a really cool idea, and if anybody can do it right, I would have to say it's Disney. George Lucas has offered to still be a mentor and still provide some guidance and come in and uh, provide a little consulting to help make sure that the Star Wars universe is maintained. And Disney has pursued some of the people who wrote for the original Star Wars movies to help out and fill in some of the gaps. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity here. So I look forward to seeing what Disney is able to do with the franchise. Now, of course, they also own all of the Lucasfilm uh, interactive things. So it's all of the the studios, the production company, Industrial Light and Magic, and all of the uh, game companies that uh, that George Lucas owned. And that's just an amazing thing to me that he sold it all, lock, stock, and barrel, to uh, the Walt Disney Company. So it was a $4 billion transaction. That's billion with a B. And that number just boggles the mind. I mean, that's what his his, uh, franchise was worth. And he took that money, that $4 billion, and donated it to his educational charity. George Lucas has an educational charity that he runs, and he put the entirety of the $4 billion into that charity. And i got to give him props. Kudos for that. I think it's an amazing thing that he gave back to a charity that's an educational charity, and that this will grow and enrich other people's lives. And I think that's a tremendous thing. Now, one other note about the whole Lucasfilm property. As you think about what Disney has... Over in the studios in uh, Walt Disney World, you have the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. And that's a really cool exhibit that was licensed to Disney by Lucasfilm. Now Disney owns it, so I'll be curious to see if they make any tweaks or changes to it uh, to make it more their own now that they're not licensing it anymore. Also, Star Tours is now completely owned by the Walt Disney Company. They can pretty much do what they want with it. There's been a rumor for some time now that Disney has plan to make some sort of an expanded universe over by where Star Tours is, to make a Star Wars-themed land that's a more permanent exhibit. So you already have the uh, Tatooine Traders, and you have the Ewok Village, and you have the uh, Star Tours exhibit. And there was always this plan to add more, and it looks like there's a great possibility that more could be added. Certainly, I expect to hear more from the Disney company in the near future that they're planning on doing some more things back there. Now that they own the entirety of the rights to the Star Wars universe, they certainly could do it and do a lot more with it. And there is some land available back in that area. They could reconfigure a little bit of the uh, back part of the park and uh, make it possible to put some more things back there. So stay tuned to that. I have to believe that Disney will try to expand on that universe. There's news coming out that uh, there's going to be a new movie starring Tom Hanks called Saving Mr. Banks. Now, what part does Tom Hanks play? Well, he plays Walt Disney. 
The story centers around the production of Mary Poppins. And, of course, the Mary Poppins movie was uh, something that Walt Disney was passionate about, and he had the uh, Sherman Brothers writing the music for it, and he did a lot of interesting things as he was developing it. The movie focuses on Mary Poppins and Walt's interaction at that time. I really am intrigued by Tom Hanks playing Walt Disney, and I look forward to seeing how he plays that part. I think he has the potential to add some really interesting thoughts to that character and make it come to life again. I think Tom Hanks is certainly the right person to play Walt Disney in this case. A while ago, I was listening to a a local radio station uh, that uh, has the Dan Lebitard show on. Dan Lebitard is a sports-oriented host, but who really doesn't do a sports-oriented show. It's sort of a catch-all entertainment type show, and he'll have different people on once in a while that are really interesting. And uh, it's over on um, it's over on 790 The Ticket if you're ever in South Florida. And it's kind of a fun show, and I encourage you to listen to it because it's, it's one of those things that's really not sports-oriented particularly. It's just a good entertainment thing. But Dan Lebertard is pretty funny, and you may have seen him on Pardon the Interruption or uh, his own show that he does with his father on uh, ESPN that you get the sense of what kind of a person he is and what kind of a personality he brings. But anyway, he gets some interesting guests on his show. And recently... He had Tim Allen on, and Tim Allen was really pretty funny. He had a lot of interesting things to say, but he kind of captured my attention when he started talking about playing Buzz Lightyear in the uh, Toy Story movies, and I wanted to play that clip for you because I think it's really pretty good. It kind of sums it up, and I don't think he really expected it to take off the way it did, and I was kind of intrigued and wanted to share it. Uh, how much like tool, tool time residuals you still getting huge checks that you're surprised your agent calls you and says yeah I, I said if 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 you must get into personal business and it sounds like you must <laughs> the the one that that's it's shockingly the gift that keeps giving is toy story i mean they don't do that anymore those are old days that you'd 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 trade away because you're young at it they don't give you any money up front they just give you some piece of should it do well and i remember when we did that movie Michael Eisner at the time, no one really knew what that was going to do because it looked so different. We, they were kind of afraid that it would make people nervous because it looked so crisp and clean being a computer-generated thing. So much so that they only ordered 500,000 Buzz Lightyear dolls, and I think they sold all of them in England the first week that was out. <laughs> that, they, they so underestimated that movie that I took a piece of it, and it's one of those things you go, good Lord. I mean, that's been out for a while. That's great. Though. But you wouldn't know it by because it's still... It's like your first dog, you know. You, you, you the new one may be faster and runs better, but that old dog's got a lot of life in it. And for me, it makes it kind of interesting because you realize just how big the Toy Story franchise really is. I don't think the Disney company, certainly not Tim, certainly not anyone else who was involved in this, had any idea what this franchise was going to be. But it really turned out to be something special. And as I've mentioned before on this podcast, the Toy Story franchise was an interesting little nugget in the story about the uh, Pixar and Disney relationship. Disney had gone along and signed an agreement with the Pixar company. Pixar was a young and up-and-coming company that was run by Stephen Jobs, and Disney had written a contract that was more favorable to themselves. They had planned to provide distribution for five movies, and what Disney had done was written the contract in such a way that sequels were not included in that five. So they were basically freebies in a way. They weren't exactly free, but Disney would provide the uh, distribution and make more money on those than they would on the other ones. 
So when they decided on Toy Story 2, there was a legal battle over whether that should actually happen or not because they wouldn't provide the same distribution. When Disney requested Toy Story 3, Pixar balked, and that became the contentious part of the relationship uh, between Stephen Jobs and Michael Eisner because he didn't want to provide any more quote-unquote free movies. Now, I use the word free very loosely there. Of course, the uh, Pixar people got paid for it, but they really got a smaller share of the royalties than they would have gotten in any of the new pictures that were put out. You know, sometime in a future podcast, we'll have to explore that relationship in more detail and kind of how that came to be. This clip came from the Dan Levitard Show, and of course that's uh, provided on 790theticket.com if you want to go check it out online. Well, for many years there's been a lot of discussion about building a train that can go from the South Florida area up to Orlando that could carry passengers easily up there so that they can go and they can uh, view the park and enjoy themselves and then be able to return home easily without having to drive. Now, as someone who's made this drive literally hundreds of times between South Florida and uh, Orlando, it's uh, an interesting prospect. Now, a few years ago, there was the uh, rail funding that was provided by the federal government to try and build a bullet train between uh, Miami and Orlando. Now, they had given them seed funding to actually build a bullet train between Tampa and Orlando, which I think is kind of a funny short trip, but uh, I thought the concept was certainly there to be able to build it. Now, there's always been one problem in in this whole design, and that's that Disney wants to make sure that its guests stay on Disney property and don't wind up wandering off. So Disney had always offered up land to the south side of the park, you know, near where the celebration uh, area is, so that people could easily leave celebration and go down to Miami or go to Tampa or whatever, but that the guests who were staying on Disney property and were staying in the resorts there really couldn't leave. It would be uh, complicated for them to be able to get down to Miami. So they always kind of had this kind of funny two-faced thing they were doing, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It was just the public face was, well, we want to offer the land up, and the private face was, well, it's this land on the southern part of the, uh, the county. And that way they could kind of protect their interests as far as keeping people in the resorts. And I get that. And I don't mean any uh, disrespect toward Disney in that sense. It's just interesting how they had these two different views on the world. So uh, the state was looking at potentially funding this and figuring out how to do it. But it never came to fruition. Even with the money that was uh, granted by the federal government, uh, the state rejected the money and it never came to pass. But more recently, there's been a private company that uh, runs some of the FEC, the Florida East Coast Railway, that has a plan to make a viable train that can actually go from Miami International Airport to Fort Lauderdale International Airport to Palm Beach International Airport right up to Orlando International Airport. Hey, now there's a concept. That could actually work, because if you can get over to the airport, you can easily get to the destination of Orlando International Airport, and there are some easy means to get from the airport down to Disney property. So this could actually work. It would depend on the price point. It would depend on the uh, length of time that the trip would take. But without a lot of stops in between, it might be worthwhile. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with. They have a plan for a a high-speed rail, but not like a bullet train. So I think that's a really interesting concept, and I'll be curious to see what comes of it over the next couple of years to see how it kind of plays out. As someone who drives there, you know, somewhat regularly, it would be nice to be able to take a break and be able to uh, just take the uh, trip up there easily. Now, I have to tell you that flying from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando is really not cost-effective at all. In fact, even though the flight is only, oh, it's about 45 minutes in actual airtime, The amount of time that you have to spend going through security, going through screening, and then getting up there makes it longer than the two and a half to three hours it takes to drive up there. And then you still have to get the rental car and still be able to drive from the airport down to Disney property or get there on bus or whatever. So you're talking about a much longer trip, and it's really not worthwhile, even though it's economical and you can do it fairly cheaply and you can get there fairly quickly as far as air travel time goes. 
so I'll be curious to see what the uh, train transit looks like once they get it up and running. Turning back to the studios for a minute, there's some discussion about the possibility and the prospect of bringing Cars Land to the studios. Now, the question is where and how, and I think the answer looks like it would likely be in place of the Lights Actions Motor Cars show. What they would do is close that show and actually build up the Cars Land back in that area to more or less emulate what they did at uh, Disney's California Adventure. Now, I think it's an intriguing idea. Whether they actually go forward with it, I don't know. Um, right at this point, it's all rumor and speculation. We don't really know much about it. But Disney has expressed an interest in producing more Cars-oriented material over in Disney World. Now, of course, they built the uh, Art of Animation Resort that has the, uh, the Cars-themed rooms uh, and the uh, Cars area out there, and that's been enormously popular. So I wouldn't be surprised if they built a Cars Land over at the studios, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what it actually looks like and how they actually do it. I know that the Lights Actions Motor Cars show is an expensive show to put on, and of course it's fraught with its own problems, and uh, you, have to, you have to rely on having stunt actors, and they're paid well, and so forth. So there's a lot of things that go on there that would make a Cars Land more appealing to Disney in the, in the grander sense. Uh, so we'll see what they decide to do, but I, I'm intrigued. I, would like to, I wouldn't mind seeing a Cars Land there, and I think it'd be a lot of fun. Now, I know I've been kind of down on the whole Avatar land, and I don't know how they're put it together. I'm not a fan of the Avatar movies and so on and so forth. Now, I was kind of thinking the last time I did one of these news segments that it was kind of dying off because we hadn't heard much about it over the last, oh, year or so. They had announced that they were going to do it, and then it sort of disappeared into the, uh, into the distance, and we didn't hear anything. Well, it turns out they're going to be making some new Avatar films. The first one is going to come out in 2015, and there's another one that comes out after that. So the, the debate is whether they will use that time period when Avatar comes back into the public consciousness and there's a new movie out to actually start doing the land around that time so they can build a little hype around it. Plus, conceptually, if you have two more movies, you have a little bit broader uh, experience that you can build around to build an Avatar land. So I guess the answer is stay tuned on that. It may not be quite dead on arrival. There may be more to the Avatar land, and it may actually come to pass uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future. I'm still not a fan of the Avatar movie, but it may still work out. And as I've said in the past, if anybody could do this right and make a compelling uh, Avatar area, it would be Disney. Now, of course, the Avatar land has been tentatively planned to go into the Animal Kingdom. And the rumor is that it would replace Rafiki's Planet Watch out at the uh, farther end of the park. You can never really be sure with Disney where they're going to go with something, how long it'll take, or when it's going to come to fruition. Uh, until they actually start building something, you never really know. Things stay on the drawing board, things get revised, and things get changed along the way. So we'll wait and see. Now, one interesting thing that happened during uh, the Food and Wine Festival that happened earlier this year is that they actually came up with a vegan station this year. Now, typically what they'll have is a bunch of stations that represent different countries or different uh, areas of the world, and they'll produce food that's sort of related to that uh, particular country. And that's the way the Food and Wine Festival works. But one thing that's always been missing is vegetable options, vegetarian options, vegan options, those types of things. And really, across the parks, unless you go to one of these sit-down, upscale restaurants, it's kind of hard to get a vegetarian or vegan option. Now, they do make some vegetarian options for counter service or some of the the lower-end restaurants, but they're not always the best options. So this year, Disney signaled a little bit of a change in what they're doing by going ahead and offering some vegan options uh, at a station specifically designed for vegans around the Food and Wine Festival. And I think that's kind of cool, actually. Uh, you know, I think, you know, tastes have changed, people's uh, diets have changed, and we've kind of evolved a little bit into doing different things. It's not always about meat and potatoes. 
And I think that's kind of neat. As, as someone who eats a little bit healthier and I try, tend to go more vegetarian in some options, vegetarian fish, that sort of a thing, that's not to say that I don't eat meat because I do at times, but it, I try to think about eating a little bit help, more health consciously. And the uh, food options that are available a lot of times at Disney and other places tends to be a little bit heavier and a little bit more uh, centered around meat. So I'm glad to see that they're at least thinking about it and had a vegan station this time, specifically for people who were looking for different options. In the Magic Kingdom, there's been some discussion about potentially shortening the Country Bear Jamboree. No, say it isn't so. I mean, the show is about uh, 15 minutes long now. It's a very clever show, kind of interactive and a lot of fun. But I think Disney is looking to uh, move more people through and uh, make sure that people have a, a, a shorter show experience so they kind of come through there. If you've ever been to the Country Bear Jamboree recently, you'll realize that there aren't as many people going into each one of the shows. It's a smaller, uh, smaller crowd than it used to be. At one point in time, the uh, waiting room was always full, and you would go in and you would fill up most of the theater. Now, even on the busiest days, the theater is maybe about half to two-thirds full, so shortening the show may be a good idea, but I'll be curious to see what they take out of the show if they do change it. There's a rumor floating around that Disney is going to try some dynamic ticket pricing. So right now, you buy the one-day, three-day, five-day, ten-day pass, whatever it is that you like, and uh, there's a set price for it. Now what they're thinking about is actually, depending on when you buy it or when you use it, there might be some different uh, price points that happen. So that if you go on the peak times, they might charge a little more, and if you go off-peak times, you, uh, you might get charged a little less. Now how this would work specifically with multi-day tickets, I- I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. So if you had a three-day ticket and you had no expiration, and you used one day during an off-peak time, and then you used two days during the peak time, how would that work, and what would the price point be? I think there's still some things to figure out as far as that goes, but it's an interesting idea that they're looking at and maybe doing some dynamic pricing to kind of adjust for the number of people that are in the park. So we'll see how that works out, too. Um, stay tuned. I, there's been a lot of discussion about it on some of the Disney boards, and uh, I think it's kind of interesting from Disney's perspective. Over in the uh, studios, returning to the studios for a minute, The Legend of Jack Sparrow's show is opened. Now, it's kind of a fun, immersive show where you learn about the legend of Jack Sparrow. It's uh, sort of in the, off the beaten path a little bit, uh, back in, a, in one of the old studios. And you go in there and you kind of get immersed in the, uh, the Jack Sparrow story. Now, it just opened, so there's not a lot of details around it yet. I mean, there's some more information coming out. I'm going to see if I can find a link to it to put in my show notes so you can uh, watch a video of it and see what it looks like. But it's an intriguing idea. Go back and see the Jack Sparrow story from behind the scenes and kind of get a feeling for who Jack Sparrow is and that whole, that whole thing. They did for a while have the Narnia exhibit uh, in the backstage area, and I went and saw that once. And it was supposed to be this immersive feeling like you're in the Narnia movie. And I saw it, and I was like, yawn, I'm not impressed with this. Um, so I'm hoping it's better than that at least. Imagineers came up with an idea to rewrite the entire backstory for the uh, legend of Big Thunder Mountain. Now they have a, a person who's the story behind Big Thunder Mountain. So the new backstory revolves around a character named Barnabas T. Bullion, the gold magnate who rules the Big Thunder Mountain Mining Company. Now the objective here is not to really rewrite the entirety of the story, but to give you something so that you have more uh, to kind of build on what's going to happen when you're riding the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and to provide for some interactive elements that you can put into the queue. So the queue itself is going to have some new interactivity in it, 
and it will it will kind of relate to the story of this uh, Mr. Bullion. So it'll re- relate back to the uh, the backstory of Mr. Bullion, and that way you have kind of an interactive thing that you can do to learn more about his life and the big Thunder Mountain Mining Company. Now, the story goes, according to Disney, that Barnabas T. Bullion is the founder and president of the Big Thunder Mountain Mining Company. The longtime mining magnate comes from a powerful East Coast family and considers gold to be his very birthright by, by virtue of his oddly appropriate name. In fact, he considers the ultimate gold strike to be his destiny. And that's why he's having so much trouble with Big Thunder Mountain. According to superstitious locals, Big Thunder Mountain is very protective of the gold it holds within, and the unfortunate soul who attempts to mine its riches is destined to fail. And so far, that prophecy is coming to pass. The mine has been plagued by mysterious forces and natural disasters ever since. And yet, Big Thunder Mountain Mining Company is still in operation. In fact, Bullion is discovering new veins of gold and digging new shafts every day, offering a closer look into the Big Thunder Mountain mining operation than ever before. But a word to the wise for anyone attempting to visit the mountain, watch out for runaway trains. So that's the uh, the concept there, and I, you know, it's intriguing that they've kind of come up with this and thought about something different. Now, sometimes when Disney reimagined things and changes it, it's a little funny because they had a story that they were building, and now they're reinventing the story to kind of match with what they wanted to do. Now, in the in this case, it kind of works because there was never really a backstory to go along with the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. There was a story arc in general that was at the late 1800s. There was gold being discovered in the Big Thunder Mountain in the American Southwest. And overnight, the small mining town of Tumbleweed became a thriving mining town. Mining was prosperous, and an extensive line of mine trains was set up to transport the ore out of the mine. Unknown to the settlers, the mountain was a sacred spot to the Native Americans and was cursed. Before long, the settlers' desecration of the mountain caused a great tragedy, which was a flash flood in the Magic Kingdom. And that befell the mines of the town, and the town was abandoned. Sometime later, the locomotives were found to be racing around the mountain on their own without engineers or crews. The Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was founded in the old mining town to allow tourists to take rides on the possessed trains. Now, one final note about this. Imagineer Tony Baxter was one of the critical players in designing the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And you could make the case that Barnabas Bullion is actually Tony Baxter. If you look at the picture carefully, it really does look like Tony. So there's a good chance that they are paying homage to the man who was behind it all and giving him his due. Now, during the fall, there was an interesting thing they were doing over at the uh, downtown Disney area. They had a, an exhibit called Phineas and Ferb and You, a brand new reality. And they just had a little stage set up with a green screen behind it. And they were inviting guests to come in and be in an interactive show with Phineas and Ferb and Perry and, and some of the other cast from the uh, Phineas and Ferb show. And it was really kind of fun. I've seen some videos from this. I wasn't able to make it up there myself because it actually closes in about a week or so. But it was a very clever idea, and it was a way to kind of immerse yourself in the world of Phineas and Ferb and kind of use that green screen to show back a movie that you interacted with uh, Phineas and Ferb and the other characters in the show. Very clever and a lot of fun, and it looked like it was a a really good time, and I'm, I'm kind of glad they did that. And then finally today, I'd like to end with a little story that I think is pretty cool. Back when he was a young animator in the 1930s, Walt Disney had an idea for a character that he called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And he was working for a small company and doing some animations for them. Well, it turned out that there was a dispute when Walt left the company. And the company claimed that they owned Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And so Walt couldn't take it with him and and building on his idea of uh, creating animations for the Walt Disney Studios. So he had to leave Oswald the Lucky Rabbit behind. And this uh, company continued to own it. So Walt came up with the idea of Mickey Mouse, and uh, he continued to use Mickey Mouse as his primary focus and uh, building uh, the brand around that. 
Oswald the Lucky Rabbit looked an awful lot in general like Mickey Mouse. Uh, you know, sort of the same general features, though of course his ears were longer. But uh, he was actually a, a different uh, character. So the years go by, and Walt Disney never again saw the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. In fact, the Walt Disney Company, in spite of its efforts to try and get back Oswald the Lucky Rabbit into the family, weren't able to do so. And there are all kinds of rumors and speculation. If you look at Oswald, he looks an awful lot like Bugs Bunny. So, you know, Warner Brothers may have taken the idea for Oswald and morphed it into Bugs Bunny. It's hard to say exactly. I mean, you know, they're all cartoon characters, and they all kind of have a similarity to them. So who knows? But we move forward about six decades into the 1990s. The little company that uh, had owned Oswald the Rabbit and its rights had been bought and sold many times over the years and was now owned by the NBC Universal Corporation. Now, as you may know, ABC owned the rights to Monday Night Football. Disney had decided that they wanted ABC to get out of the sports business and move on and do other things. ESPN, the entity they owned, would continue to be the sports arm of the Disney company, but ABC would be more news and network-oriented shows. So the Disney company was going to give up Monday Night Football. Enter NBC, who wanted to purchase the rights to produce a football program that they would air on Sunday nights, and it would be Sunday Night Football. The one thing that NBC was missing was a great sports announcer. Al Michaels had been doing ABC's Monday Night Football for the last decade or so, and NBC really wanted to get Al Michaels to come over and work for them. Now, Al had no other commitments to ABC at that point. He was doing a few other sports and a few other things for them, but, prim- but primarily he was doing Monday Night Football. So, so the Disney company was willing to negotiate him getting out of his contract, since they weren't going to be using him to do football anymore. So the contract negotiations started up, And it turns out that what Disney got in return was the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in exchange for Al Michaels going over to be able to do Sunday Night Football over on NBC. So you can kind of thank Al Michaels, in a way, for getting Oswald the Lucky Rabbit back into the Walt Disney Company's portfolio. And that's why you see Oswald the Lucky Rabbit showing up on some of the Disney Channel shows occasionally, and he's in the new The Power of Two uh, video game. And there you go. That's how Oswald the Lucky Rabbit came back to the Walt Disney Company. Well, that was my news segment for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'll be back again soon to talk about Fantasyland and some other great things. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Show notes can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Looking to do some travel planning? Want to find an authorized Disney vacation planner? You should visit Destinations in Florida. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound On Music. You can find his music at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA. Our thanks also go to Doug for his continued contributions to the show. You can find links to other great Disney podcasts as well as the latest Twitter feed and the Disney Buzz on DisneyPodcast.net. And don't forget to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There's a Hidden Mickeys app for finding and sharing hidden Mickeys at all of the Disney parks around the world. There's also an app designed especially for pin traders. You can keep track of all your pins and your wish lists Please be generous with your time or a donation to Autism Speaks. We do hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you drive home safely. Show number 118.